For most people that have not been born with a silver spoon in their mouth, yeah, you know what a silver spoon? It's, it's an old phrase that if you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, it meant that you were kind of born into money. Uh, if, if for, for, for most of us who weren't born into money, uh, life is filled with a lot of grueling work, a lot of grueling work. It's an up at dawn, pride swallowing siege. There was always work to do for mankind, even in a fallen state. But uh, once the fall of man happened, there was the, that part of the curse that added to the work, that added to the labor. God told Adam that literally by the sweat of his brow that he would eat bread. And so for us, there is a lot of grueling work because man has fallen into sin. And so the mandate that God gave for us as his imagers to rule and reign upon the earth, to represent him in the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, all those things have become more difficult. They've become more harder because of the curse, the curse of sin. It brought pain in bringing children into the world. And the curse of sin brought the thorns and thistles of life to bear upon our work. This was, of course, part of the justice of God. God is a just God. He's a God of justice. God told Adam that they should not eat of the tree that was in the midst of the garden. And that if indeed they ate of the tree that was in the midst of the garden, there would be consequences for it. And the consequences were sure. Man's disobedience brought sweat and hard work and death and despair. But not only is the Lord a God of justice, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And by his grace, he wants to bring all people from death to life, from striving in life to rest. He wants to bring all people from wandering aimlessly home to the family of God. But this can only happen, there's only one way that it can happen. It can only happen if you receive Christ as Savior and that if you're born anew into the family of God. You've got to be born from above, becoming a child of God and becoming a member of God's family. Tonight we come to a portion of scripture that many people might just breeze right by. Breeze right by it, skip over it, not important. But it is an important passage. Every, all parts of scripture are useful, profitable for our good, amen? And so we're going to see an important truth of God's plan and of his love and his mercy and his grace, even in this text that we look at tonight. So we're gonna look at this passage at the close of Genesis 4, and the title of the message is Welcome Home, but this point, this first point is God has a family. There are those that are not a part of the family of God, but God does have a family, and you're welcome to come and be a part of the family of God. Let's pick this up in Genesis 4, beginning at verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, 
and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begot Mahuhael, and Mahuhael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Adah was born to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nahamah. Then Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What we see here in these passages, what we're looking at here tonight, and really next week, is we're going to look at two contrasting families. I want to draw your attention back to chapter three where God said when Adam and Eve fell and he spoke, he was speaking to the Nakash. And if you're not familiar with the term, you've got to go back and listen to our study on Genesis three and the serpent. A lot of people grow up thinking there was a serpent and a snake that was causing all kinds of trouble in the garden. And yes, he is called a serpent. He's called the dragon, that serpent of old. But this word, and I go into great detail explaining what we were dealing with when we were dealing with the Nakash, a divine cherub of God, a, a, a powerful order of the angels who had fallen out of heaven. And yes, he was connected to this serpentine kind of idea, but let, let me rest assured we're dealing with a very powerful, a very powerful person in the Nakash, and that is the term biblically. And remember, when the curse was given out to the serpent, to the Nakash, he said, and I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And so there, God talked about, he talked about this ongoing battle, this ongoing war that would continue. It's going to continue. It's continuing even now. It's going to continue till the very end, according to the New Testament, until all things are brought under the dominion of Christ. And God brings that into the final state, that final state of being where we'll be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And so what we'll see in this last part of Genesis 4 and all of chapter 5 are kind of two contrasting families. And this is important in the placement of it in the scripture. You have to look at the last part of Genesis 4 and all of chapter 5 is kind of linked back to that Genesis 3.15 and this declaration that there would be two seeds that would flow out. And so you've got to get this to understand what is happening all the way through the entire Bible and what is happening today. 
on the earth. And so this is very, very important. And so you could gloss by, right by this chapter and a half and skip over this, but you're going to miss a lot in terms of understanding what the scripture is all about. Now, last week, we saw where Cain did not obey the commands of God for sacrifice. There were specific clues that we looked at where Abel brought the sacrifice that was the correct sacrifice for him to bring. And because of that, because Cain did not follow the, the commands, he, was, he became angry in his heart, and he allowed uh, that anger to turn to hatred and bitterness, and that hatred and bitterness, when he went out into the field to talk to Abel, the Bible tells us that he rose up and he slew his brother. And because he killed Abel, because Cain killed Abel, God came to him, and there was a, a curse upon Cain then that because he was a tiller of the ground, then things would be even harder for him in terms of his work in the, that working the ground. And he was cast out literally from the family. And God told him, you're going to be a, a, a vagabond on the earth. You're going to go out and you're going to wander in the earth. And from that moment forward, we begin to see the lines of the demarcation of this battle of seeds. We see uh, Cain and his family going out, and then next week, don't miss it, we're gonna, don't, that next week's gonna be awesome because we're gonna talk about the genealogy of Noah, and it is absolutely incredible and awesome. You do not wanna miss it. But anyways, you see uh, what God does in bringing forth uh, a, a replacement, and we'll get to it tonight, a replacement for Abel uh, that ca carries on the line of the seed of the woman and thus the, 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 we can trace back through that line and trace forward to Jesus Christ who came from that line. Okay, so now, where is it? Now, Charles, what are you talking about? Are you saying that Cain has now become a seed of the serpent? Because it's very clear in the Bible there that God is talking to the serpent and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed, whose seed? The serpent seed and the seed of the woman. Cain has become by his decision to not obey God and to then kill, kill Abel and then become unrepentant even though God came to him and asked him, where are you? Where's your brother? I don't know where my brother is. What, my, bro my brother's keeper? You see, here God is coming to Cain, trying to give him, trying to, to reach out to him, giving him an opportunity to repent, and he does not take that. And so he's cast out from the family then in that sense. So he becomes aligned with and becomes representative of the seed of the serpent. We referenced a couple scriptures last week that talked about this. John, the apostle, talks about Cain in his epistle in 1 John 3.12. He says, Cain, who was of the wicked one. Cain, who was of the wicked one. Now, Jesus, talking to a group of Pharisees, he connected the Pharisees all the way back to Cain. What? Yeah, I've got it up on the screen. In Luke chapter 11, verse 48, Jesus said this to them, in fact, you bear witness that you approve of the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, who? The prophets. Your fathers killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Now, how does he connect it all the way back to Cain? Next verse in 51, Jesus says this, 
from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. So Jesus is actually connecting the dots of the Pharisees and their rejection of him as the Christ, as the Messiah, and connecting that line all the way back to, to Cain killing Abel. And really, I've read commentators making a case that Abel was the fir- one of the first prophets, that Abel was a, a prophet. And here it is, Jesus, from Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the temple. And so we have here, in the rest of Genesis 4, the family of Cain and those who are aligned with the wicked one and against God. What was, fam- what was Cain's family like? Here we have a record of some of the things Cain and his family did and what they were, were like. Cain went out. Remember, God told him he was going to be a fugitive, a vagabond, because of his actions, but not just because of his actions, because of his actions and his unrepentance. He was going to be a man without a home. Cain was then on the outside of God's family in that sense. When a person comes to Christ, they come into the family of God. They, in that sense, they come home. See, Cain becomes representative of those who go out, who wander out from the family. When someone comes to Christ, it's really someone coming home to the family of God, coming home to the family. They find a home in the family of God. They come home from their wandering. And that's why we say to a person who comes to God and to the family of God, that's why we say, welcome home. Welcome home home because you've come home to your God. You've come home to your creator. You've come home to your redeemer. You've come home to the family of God that God wants you to be a part of. That, that, that he did everything that he needed to do so that that could be possible so that you could be a part of the family of God. But he's left that little, that choice up to each and every person. You have to choose to, to serve him and, and to receive him in that sense. And we'll get, that, get to that a little later. So Cain wanders. Cain wanders, and it says in verse 17 that he had a wife and began to procreate. He knew his, this is the biblical language, right? And so-and-so knew his wife. And the, we talked about it last week. The verb there is yada, it's to know. Yada, 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 Cain, yada, 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 knew his wife, and there, you know, okay, you got it, right? Okay. So that's where that all comes from. So what this does, though, is it brings up a lot of scoffing from the skeptics. It brings up a lot of scoffing from the skeptics because here's the question. Wait a second. Who was Cain's wife? Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel. And now it's telling us that Cain went out and married a woman and started having babies. So... See, I knew the Bible wasn't true because who was Cain's wife? Last week, I talked to you about what another gentleman has called, I think rightly so, the biblically endorsed extra-biblical texts 
or the biblically endorsed extra canonical texts. Remember, we talked about those. What? What are you talking about? I'm talking about books that aren't in the Bible but are mentioned in the Bible, and the authority that they have is referred to, or the history that is recorded in them is relied upon to make a particular point. Or in the case of the book of Enoch, Jude, the brother of Jesus, directly quoting from the book of Enoch. Okay, so there's what we call extra, uh, biblically endorsed extra biblical text. And if you read those texts, you come to find out very quickly that Adam and Eve had bunches and bunches of kids. Remember, when we go through the genealogy next week of Adam through Noah, you're gonna see that um, before the flood that uh, people lived a long time. And so there was, they had many, many children. And so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very complicated for the population actually to, to grow very quickly. In fact, I know personally, I have a friend who has 13 children, okay? So just think what Adam and Eve could have done over many, 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 many years, okay? So they got the job done, and there were... There... <clears throat> Amen? Amen? So one of these women, one of these girls, chose to go with Cain and be his wife. Chose to go with Cain and go out with him from the family into his wanderings. And Cain had a son and named him Enoch. Now this Enoch of Cain's Cain's son is not to be confused with the Enoch that is talked about in the book of Enoch and uh, the, is the seventh from Adam and Adam's lineage from Adam to Noah, and we'll get into him next week. This is a different Enoch. So Cain had a son named him Enoch, and Enoch, he goes out, Cain goes out, and he, it says he builds a city, and he names the city Enoch. And the, the Hebrew, I got this from one of the commentators, the Hebrew actually reads where it says he built a city. The Hebrew actually reads he was building a city. So, you know, it kind of, it kind of is indicative of, in the language of it, it kind of becoming his uh, life's aim, you know, to build a city. Well, I've, I've been cast out to wander, to be a fugitive, to be a vagabond. I, I, I'm the outcast now, so I'm going to go out here, and I'm going to make something for myself. I'm going to have kids, and I'm going to make a city. I'm going to build a city. And this is what he did. It was the thought and the work of his life, and it is proof that it that immediately after the protection offered to him by God was gone, when he went out, he longed for something, something to fortify himself against those things that would be out there. And so this is the beginning. It was probably, you know, back in the day, you know, to build a city, you know, basically it first and foremost meant building a wall. You know, it's the beginning of what, what was, was known in antiquity as the walled cities. You, you would have walled cities and it would protect you from all the stuff going on out there in between the walled cities. And so if you look back in ancient times, the cities were, were walled and then out of the city was all kinds of stuff going on out there. Wild beasts and <laughs> wild people. So we built a walled city. 
One commentator had this to say about Cain, Cain building his city. It was his effort to create for his line, his family, a point of unity as compensation for the lost unity with God. You see, he had, he had that community. He had that home within the family. But because of his deeds and his unrepentance, he was cast out. And so he went out to create for himself something, to do it on his own and to see what was going to happen. There is a theme throughout scripture. It's really a contrast, a contrast really of those who have a city, who, who, who kind of feel at home in the world, who kind of feel at home on the earth, and those who are really what's called pilgrims. And Peter, the apostle, really calls people that believe in God people who are pilgrims. Hey, man, we're just passing through. We're, we're, we're on our way. We don't have a city. We're looking for a city. Abraham was a man who was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Amen. Amen. And so there's a contrast in Scripture between those who would but build the city, and nothing against building a city, nothing against architecture or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a big fan of architecture, right along with all the rest of them. Okay, I was just in Chicago and saw some of the most incredible architecture that the country has to offer. Amen? Marina City and all of it. Incredible stuff. But there is a contrast in Scripture between those two things. If you're a, if you're a child of God here tonight... Let me tell you that you have a city. You have a city, and it's called the New Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. I'm a citizen. Amen? I'm a citizen of the New Jerusalem. I have a city. And, 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 and we're a part of that because we're a part of the family of God. Amen. Now, the narrative continues with Cain's family growing. His sons and his grandsons advance technology. There's all this stuff that is credited to uh, some of these sons of Cain. Down the line from Cain, it came to Lamech. Lamech, this guy, was a real character, to say the least. He had two wives, so he's the first bigamist recorded in the scripture. He had sons that were credited with being kind of the father of various fields. You had Jubal, who was the father of musicians, those who play the harp and flute. So he was like, I don't know, maybe the first guitarist or whatever, you know. <clears throat> the harp. Okay, folks, yeah, the harp. <laughs> and then Tubal Cain was the father of working with metals. Let's call him a blacksmith. He was more, he more than likely made weapons, learned how to fashion metals, bronzes, and different metals into different kinds of weapons. Lamech, their, the father, he also committed, like his ancestor Cain, he also committed a, a murder. Someone hurt him, someone wounded him. And so what he did is he killed that person. And here in our text, we have recorded for us his boast there in verses 23 and 24. He says this, 
And it's almost kind of like a, it's, it's almost like a song. It's almost, you get this impression that, there, that like he, he actually had a tune to this or something. You know, this was like top 40 back then or something. You know, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. Wow, what's the point of the boast? What is he really boasting about? He's boasting about the fact that he, that Cain, his ancestor killed a man and God actually said and put a protection upon Cain that he would not be avenged in that sense, that if anybody killed Cain, that he would be avenged sevenfold. Now Lamech is boasting and saying, well, I'm putting out, I'm, I'm multiplying that by 10. God's going to put a sevenfold vengeance thing on Cain. Well, I killed a man too, and that's 10 times that. And so it's a really boastful thing. And so what you read in this, what you need to read, what you need to understand is the, the boastfulness, the pride, the arrogance that now is kind of simmering up and, 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 and moving up from the people that are now populating the earth. Things are going downhill with this line of Cain. Cain's family is really a microcosm then of man without God in this way. It's pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is the hallmark of man. Technical prowess, oh, we're figuring stuff out. We know how to work with metals. We know how to do stuff. We know how to fashion military things, arms, weapons. We know how to make instruments. We know how to make music. We know how to do stuff. But in the end, it doesn't get you anywhere. It, in the end, it's all good and great. Blacksmith, great. Thank God the blacksmiths of old. Now, we don't think of it now, but like back 150 years ago, you'd have been thanking God for a blacksmith. Amen? <laughs> Thank God for musicians, right? But in the end, all the technology in the world, however great that it is, is not going to save you. I think that there's no other better or perfect picture of this than Steve Jobs. Now, I don't bring him up to poke at him, really. I mean, I rather, I rather liked Steve. I was one that enjoyed the, you know, when Apple would come out with the latest rollout of their product, there was no one better, really, of rolling out a product, a new technology, than Steve Jobs. There really wasn't. I mean, other people have tried to mimic him, you know? They've tried to put on jeans and a black mock turtleneck and walk out and, hey, we really think we've done something here. Right. <laughs> we really think we've really created some magic, right? He ran one of the top technological companies in the world. He was a multi-billionaire. But in the end, None of that could save him. None of that can save him. 
And so it really is. It's not to say that an iPhone's not great. I mean, look it up. I'm up, I'm up here. I'm representing. <laughs> okay, so don't get, don't get that this is somehow a bash. All I'm saying is technology's great, but it's not going to save you. It's not going to save you. Young people, it's great. I love it too. And my kids told me, taught me how to do Snapchat and all this. <laughs> you know? At first, I didn't get it. I was like, why would, you, why would I send you a Snap when I can just text you? And they were like, Dad, you don't understand. <laughs> it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing, Snapchat. Now I kind of get it a little bit. I get your story and, you know, the filters and all that stuff. you right. I could take a snap right now. <laughs> I could take a video snap and snap all of you. Look at this. I'm going to do it just so I can say. <laughs> hey, say hi. Say hi. Hi. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Back here. Good crowd here tonight. Technology. Okay, let's pick a filter. <clears throat> Lake Washington has a filter? Did you know that? Anybody know that? I didn't know that. I just learned that. Okay, I'm going to use the Lake Washington filter. Okay, I'm going to put it on my story, and I'm going to throw this out here to a bunch of people. All right. Jonathan. Okay, there you go. Andrew. Ellie back there. Kevin. Kevin, are you still on your Snapchat? There you go. <laughs> Technology's great, folks. I'm the first one to say so, okay? I'm right there with you. But in the end, it's not going to save you. It's not going to save you. And so Cain's family becomes kind of a perfect picture of that, that, you know, here's all this stuff and this advancement, but while it's advancing their heart of rebellion and their heart of arrogance and their heart of pride was going the other direction. Not, it wasn't leading them back to the family of God. It was leading them in the other direction. And so this is what it looks like outside the family of God. There's perhaps a veneer of success, but the success of dealing with our ultimate problem is not dealt with by by technology. And let me just say this before we move on from the technology thing. They're trying hard. Oh, these technological people, they're trying hard. I mean, the Google, the board of Google thinks they're going to figure it out. You, you, you think I'm making this up. You, you, go, you go and Google it. <laughs> you go and Google what the Google board, the multi-billionaires of the world think they're going to do and replacing their blood and doing all kinds of stuff, okay? One of the guys on the board says he's going to live for 500 years. So here's what I'm saying. They're trying, but I'm here to tell you that technology is not going to be your savior. It can't save you. There is a savior, however, though. Now, the text then turns. We see Cain's family, Cain's family. And then the text turns here at the end of chapter 4, and we come to verse 25. And it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, 
whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then man began to call on the name of the Lord. And so the text, here we have all this stuff about Cain, and then boom, all of a sudden, we just have this little couple of verses about Seth being born. And the significance of Seth being born is that Seth is really becomes the replacement for Abel. Cain killed Abel, and Seth is the one. Of course, there were other sons and daughters, but Seth comes along, and Seth is the replacement. Seth, his name means appointed. He's appointed. Seth is appointed as the replacement for Abel, and thus becomes the line that is then going to ultimately produce the seed of the woman that God, the Lord, talked about, the seed of the woman that would come and, and, come and be born to crush the head of the serpent, looking back to Genesis 3.15. So uh, Seth becomes the replacement, the appointed one, the appointed replacement for Abel. Now, when you go into the New Testament and you look at the Gospels and you look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you say, okay, we're gonna look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we're gonna track this down, okay? When you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you come to the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, you, you study up and you realize that there are two genealogies, one in Matthew, one in Luke. John and Mark do not have genealogies, so Matthew and Luke have genealogies. Matthew's uh, genealogy of Jesus takes it all the way back as far as Abraham connects him to the people of God, the, the people, the, the man that God, and the family that God selected uh, in that sense. Luke's genealogy, however, goes all the way back and takes it all the way back to Adam. And so I'm going to put the last section of Jesus' genealogy up on the screen for you in Luke chapter uh, 3, verses 36 through 38. And I've just kind of He's cut in here, and we're going to pick it up here where it says Noah. Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enosh, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, so if you go all the way out and read it all the way down to verse 38, you start at Jesus, and you get all the way back to Adam, who was the son of God. What we see here is I want to draw your attention to the very last line that you see on the screen. The very last line. It says simply this. Well, a little bit from the previous line. Or no, just the last line. Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What does that say? It tells us this, that Seth was the son of Adam. Adam was the son of God. What's that? Seth was the son of Adam. Adam was the son of God. What's the significance? The whole thing, the whole Bible is really about this, about God drawing those who want to be a part of his family into fellowship with him. Seth is the son of Adam. Adam's the son of God. We're not sons of God by just physical birth. You're not born as a physical person as a son of God. You're born into this world as a son of Adam. 
You're a son of Adam. There's no one better at articulating this than C.S. Lewis. He did it beautifully in many of his nonfiction work and also in his fictional work in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you read any of the Chronicles of Narnia, even picking up just with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, immediately the children are called what? Sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, right? So he, he did a wonderful job of articulating this, but he's articulating a very, very important spiritual principle and truth. It is this, that when we're born physically into this world, we're born as a son or daughter of Adam. But we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to become the children of God. Amen? How does it happen? It happens through receiving and believing, trusting upon Christ. If we'll believe and receive, trusting upon Christ, we become the sons of God. John, in his, in his gospel, put it this way in John chapter one, he said it this way, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, listen, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is John saying? What is his point? He's saying, you have been given an opportunity. You have been given, I call it the most, the best right. People want to talk about rights, and I have a right to do this, and I have freedom, blah, 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 blah. This is the best right that there exists. If you'll receive, believe upon, and receive Christ, you will be given the right to become the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. Amen? Listen, to those who believe in his name, receiving, receiving him, believing him, trusting upon him. To those who believe in his name, listen, verse 13, who were, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in two chapters later in this gospel, in John chapter three, when, G when Jesus has a nighttime discussion with one of the elders of Israel, Nicodemus, and he has this whole discussion. And it is on that occasion that he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's really, you must be born from above. You must be born in the way that John talks about in his opening of his gospel, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, not because two, a man and a woman got together and got, you know, yada, 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 and the whole thing, yeah. Okay? But of God, born from above. And if you'll receive him, if you'll believe upon him, you have been given the right to become a child of God. Here's the question tonight as we totally move to, to a close. Have you been born like this? Have you been born like this? If you have, then you're a part of God's family. If you've been born from above, if you've been born again, if you've been born of God, then you're a part of the family of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. If you haven't been born like this verse says, here's the good news. You can be. You can be. How do you do it? How do, how do, how do you accomplish this unbelievable thing? The answer is right there in the beginning of the verse. Keep it up there. 
no, back. What's the answer? But as many as received him. But as many as received him, you've been given this right. And so what is it? You have to receive Christ. You have to receive, you have to receive and believe, really, is the way to say it. Receive and believe upon Christ. How do you do that? You might ask. I'm one that asks. I want to ask all the questions. You know, ask my mom. I was one to ask all the questions until there was no more questions. Okay, then I can go to bed. Okay? As long as I got some questions, I'm going to keep on asking questions. Okay? How do you do that? How do you believe and receive? Well, Paul explains it in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. You'll see it on the screen. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Believe and receive. Now, chapter 4 in Genesis, it ends with a verse that in your English translation is a really, really, really bad translation. It says this, then man began to call on the name of the Lord. And when you read that in English, it sounds like, oh, good. You're like reading along and all this and Cain's a vagabond and Lamech's killing people and boasting about it, you know, all the, wow, what's going on? Oh, then at this time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Oh, good, good, good. No, it ain't good because I'm going to show you what this verse actually says, okay? If you go to the Targum of Onkelos, a Targum is a word, it's just kind of a fancy scholarly word for translation, okay? So you have a Targum in your hand. Well, I don't got no Targums. Who's talking about Targums? These guys talking about Targums, Targum this, Targum that. I don't got no Targums. You got a Bible in your hand, guess what? You got a Targum, okay? You got an English Targum, okay? It's another word for translation. In the Targum of Onkelos, which is the, the most trusted Targum of the Hebrews, of the ancient Hebrews, I'm going to read it from the, the, the English translation, <laughs> the English Targum of the Targum of Onkelos, okay? All right, you follow me here tonight? Yes. How many of you with me still here? Okay, how many are looking at Snapchat? All right, okay. Remember what I said about technology, okay? No. This is what it says. Then in his days, the sons of men desisted from praying in the name of the Lord. This is actually, this is a, it's, a, it's kind of a statement that is kind of a, it's kind of one of those summary statements. It's a summary of this last part of Genesis 4. It's kind of, it's as if to sum up what's happening in this family of Cain. Then in his days, men desisted. It's kind of like one of those phrases that the gospel, the, the, the gospel writer Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, and how he would have those, he would have these narrative discourses, and then he would have these summary sections, right? It could be like a couple of verses or maybe even just a sentence. But here we have a sentence at the end of Genesis 4 that just kind of sums up for us kind of where the whole Cain thing is going. Then in his time, men desisted from praying in the name of the Lord. Now, that brings us to another question. Are you one that has desisted from praying or calling on the name of the Lord? 
The Bible is very clear that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever will. When you call on Jesus, you're calling on the God who saves. How's that? Jesus is the Greek transliteration of his actual Hebrew name, which was more like Joshua or the way they probably pronounced it, Yehoshua, which actually means Yahweh. God has a name, Yahweh, Yahoshua, saves. Yahweh saves. When you call on Jesus, you're calling upon the God who saves. So whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's because Yahweh is salvation. He's the way to salvation. Amen? So when you call on God, when you call on Jesus Christ, you are calling upon the God who saves and calls you home. Home. Home from your wandering. Home from lostness, home to the family of God. Believing upon Christ, receiving him, being given the right to become a child of God. And if you'll do that, if you'll receive him, you're home. Amen? You're home in the family of God.